The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. How are you doing? Uh, everyone's probably right. I'm, I'm just overreacting. This has been an exceptionally difficult time for you. Being the poster boy for the convoy lie? You are just doing your job. I don't remember this part in the oath we took. Our job is to keep America safe and allow her citizens to sleep well at night. I'd say the greater good is being served. Whether you believe it or not, you're serving your country honorably. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, January the 26th, 2023. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. It's been a long time since... Dr. Salim Mansour and I actually sat across from each other in person. And of course, for those who do not know, Salim Mansour is a regular on our show, and he is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Western Ontario. Welcome, Salim. Thank you. Our journey will begin right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show. Because as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. And as you know, Salim, last week I shared with our listeners your correspondence regarding the documentary From JFK to 9-11, Everything is a Rich Man's Trick, by Francis Richard Connolly. And with that forwarding of that film and that link, you wrote, I find myself, despite the pain, liberated from the lies in which, like so many of us, I was complicit in regurgitating. May there be divine forgiveness for those truly repentant, who knowingly or unknowingly lent credence to falsehood and lies by which people were abused and worse by those criminals who parade among us as if they are our betters, end quote. Don't you think that you were being a bit too hard on yourself? In what way? Well, you seem to feel like you're complicit in regurgitating some kind of falsehood, but I, I didn't catch any falsehood in anything I've ever heard you say. So what, what were you feeling about that at that point? Well, I mean, each one of us are in some ways responsible. And me in the position over almost the last four decades, I was in a very responsible position as a professor in a major university. And so consciously, I was not engaged in dissembling any facts. I mean, when we are talking about politics and Mm -hmm. history. However, the books that we used, the text that we read, that is the students read, Uh the lectures that I gave, were all, in a sense, constructed in the period post-Second World War, and especially in 
the context of North American politics and history, all of this were written predominantly by American and Canadian writers, historians, academics, journalists. And so we were looking back and we were discussing and putting these things in the context. In my own circumstance, I never, on some of the most critical issues of the period, like for instance, the murder of John F. Kennedy, I never went down the rabbit hole. I never got caught up in the discussion about whether John F. Kennedy was killed by the lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, or whether there was a takedown of John F. Kennedy by, as we now know from, from the documentary that you played out the other day, mm-hmm. a very elaborate, complicated, complex network of people who had the motive, who had the resources, and who decided that John F. Kennedy has to be taken out. And John F. Kennedy was taken out. And yet the questions about John F. Kennedy being taken out and how he was taken out has never been fully satisfactorily answered. The Congress demanded that the files on John F. Kennedy be released. That was almost two decades ago, in the 1990s, Mm -hmm. after the JFK movie was made by Oliver Stone, and it hasn't been released. So stepping back, and I'm just taking JFK as an example, I personally never imagined that a democratic government such as that of the United States, or in our case, the Canadian government, would be taking actions in which the enemy would be the very people of the state. Mm -hmm. And facts would be distorted, eliminated, hidden, purged, so on and so forth, and question remain. And all of this came to the head, again, in a personal sense, with COVID-19 and with the election of 2020, which we now know was a rigged election and President Trump was ousted from office. We now know that the COVID scam was a scam in which the target was the people by the governments, in this case, the United States government, the Canadian government that brought down the lockdown, the mass mandate, and then the messenger RNA gene therapy sold as a vaccine. So all of that led back to my comment that in some way we are all complicit because we carried the story that was basically the official narrative that was constructed by governments and their institutions and their establishment. But I'm sure you were never faced with somebody coming up to you and saying, no, Salim, you got it wrong. Here's what really happened. And then you rejected the truth. You never went through a process like that, did you? No, no, I didn't go through that. That I was making, again, in a generic way that, you know, we should have been aware. And I was aware of the lies of the Vietnam War, but I, again, did not connect it in the level, in the way that now we can see when we go back into the details about what happened to John F. Kennedy. We did not connect the dot. That was my job, to connect the dot. And I did not connect those dots. Well, you know, after hearing the documentary and reading your correspondence, it occurred to me, and I mentioned it on the show last week, that we can no more say that the history is settled than we can say the science is exactly. settled. Exactly. Right? So 
we learn more about history as more doors are opened and information comes to us. Right. So I find it hard to take on any sort of guilt or responsibility for things we couldn't have known. And certainly, let's face it, we all lived in a relatively free society, something unheralded and unprecedented in mankind's history. From, from the point of view of the average man, you know, working day to day, North America, Canadians, Americans, pretty much the same. We had no reason to suspect But I'm not otherwise. talking about yeah. the average man. I'm not yeah. talking about the postal clerk or, or the bus driver. I'm talking about people who in so many different ways are responsible in the functioning of what you call a free society. And a free society can only be free when you are willing to ask those difficult questions that need to be asked in terms of how free are we? Mm-hmm. How free were we when... The government said that you cannot fly the plane, you cannot move from one place to the other unless you wear a mask, unless you keep a six feet or, or three meter distance, a social distancing. How free were we when, without much notice, our institutions were closed? Well, people didn't ask the question, they just went along. Right. So the degree to which we are complicit varies. You know, one may be just an ordinary, simple, average. Jane and Joe, and they are just carrying out the instruction and the orders that are handed down to them. But then there are those who are making those orders. Then there are those who are then spreading those orders, justifying those orders, journalists writing about them, school teachers, you know, pushing their students Mm -hmm. and the parents of their students to live according to the orders that have come down. And those orders were being questioned and challenged very soon after by the experts, and yet people went along with it. So I wasn't making a blanket statement, but I was just making a statement that people like us were in a position of responsibility, and we needed to ask those questions. And now sitting in front of you, we're looking back on history from this vantage point. We are in January of 2023, and we are looking back at history How did we arrive at this world, Uh, 2023? And there are lots and lots and lots of questions about it, which our governments don't want to ask, our media don't want to question, and our people are largely ignorant. Well, perhaps you'll feel a bit better when you recall that the last time we got together, this was what we were talking about, and you concluded that history is being rewritten to reflect the past that is not so. History is constantly being rewritten, and the question emerges, why? Well, one is simply the more information is available. People have done more digging and come up with more evidence, you know. So, yes, you were absolutely on the mark when you said history is unsettled. Science is unsettled because we grope our way, and the whole epistemology of science is trial and error, Mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah, these are unsettled things. And I think that's where comes the question of one's own integrity, one's own sense of responsibility and accountability. A free society cannot function if the individuals are themselves not willing to be responsible. What is it about the scapegoats in society? Are we always going to be looking for scapegoats? What do you learn from human nature that this seems to keep happening? Uh, There's a book called The Nurture Assumption. And what the author learned is that humans define themselves by opposition. So if you have a group of people and it's kids and adults, the kids will see themselves as kids because we're as opposed to adults. If the adults leave, the kids see themselves as boys and girls. Mm -hmm. So they divide. So this idea 
which is a very lefty idea that human beings naturally all get along is not accurate. And the best example of this is look after 9-11, look where there's a war. It's not like when times are thriving that everyone's all working together. When things are bad and there's an enemy, you know, it's, it's the Japanese or Pearl Harbor, it's Al-Qaeda. That's when everyone really comes together because now we have someone to be against. So there will always be the out-group and we have to be the in-group as opposed to them. But there's a viciousness to the actions you take towards the out-group that varies throughout history. Yes. Like the degree of viciousness can cross the line towards like atrocities, towards genocide. Right. Why does it sometimes do that? Why does it sometimes cross into genocide? I understand it's a useful thing to have the other to blame, but why does that sometimes lead to sort of action that says, I'm going to murder, well, I'm going to torture I the other? I think the question really is why sometimes it doesn't. Right. And one of the things I learned when I was doing the New Right is a lot of the Nazis, using that term loosely speaking, neo-Nazis, they make the point that like, oh, when the Holocaust happened, it really wasn't that big of a deal. And that only became a big deal in the decades later. And this just shows the power of Jewish influence. And I'm like, this to me is a great thing. It's a great thing that we sat down pretty recently, historically, and we're like, wait a minute, guys, when we have a war or we have conquest, you don't have to just start killing everyone. Like this is something that's bad and wrong. And, and certainly in the last... 60 years, 70 years, this is something that people have come to take for granted. But that wasn't the case before. It would always be, or not always, but often, if you conquer, you just go wild and just start slaughtering masses of people. Um, it's, um, who's the guy from um, Harvard? Um, and he- uh, Steven Pinker. Steven Pinker, I'm sorry, I forgot his name. So he just talks about like, you know, we know, this is one of the reasons also why there was so much skepticism when the Holocaust started, because this was regarded as something that was barbaric. This is from the Middle Ages, from the biblical times. We don't do this anymore, we're civilized now. So genocide is historically the norm. I think it's also harder to pull it off emotionally when you have the visuals and when you have the audio and when you have the voices of the people being slaughtered. We don't know, you know, if this was 2000 years ago and, and people, you know, in the Bible, they go kill this group, go kill that group. We don't have their names, we don't have the visuals, we don't have anything. But when you see someone being like, you know, uh, there's a book about, I think the Rwandan genocide, and the title is, we regret to inform you that tomorrow we will be executed with all of our families, like a telegram. And like when you get a telegram like this, it's very different than reading some history book about you know the Assyrians killed the Phoenicians. It's like, I don't know who this is, I don't know who that is, right? So I think this is something that has changed uh, very recently. There was this kind of interesting moment just that speaks to the way technology has liberated people from violence. Um, Kristallnacht, which was a moment in uh, the lead up to the Holocaust, where basically, you know, with Hitler's blessing, you had a nationwide burning of Jewish businesses, synagogues burnt down, uh, and Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, you know, the Kaiser, he said, for the first time in my life, I'm embarrassed to be a German. But that was a moment where worldwide, even plenty of people who did not think very highly of Jewish people were like, this is a wrap. This is a complete nightmare. But 200 years ago, 100 years ago, maybe not literally a Kristallnacht, but there's an outgroup and we hate them and we're going to kill them and it's fine. And you think it's even more difficult now with the internet 
yes. do that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm not now more difficult doesn't mean it doesn't happen or it can't happen. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying the we know a lot about what's going on in North Korea. You know, probably the most secretive country on earth. Uh, there's a lot of atrocities in Eritrea, uh, which is kind of known. So I think it also it's also like if you think about it, if you're how many years ago, 300 years ago, you only know the people in your village and they're all probably going to look like you, so on and so forth. Whereas now, if I'm on social media and there's someone from any country and maybe their picture looks a little different, they use the same anime picture as somebody else, but they're putting forth their ideas, you do see the humanity in them and you do see a sense of, of familiarity and a familial bond with them. And when you hear about these things, you know, when I, again, like I did when I did Dear Reader, no one, any, I was on Al-Qaeda and I was on Alex Jones, no one pushed back about like, oh, the North Koreans. They were all like, this is horrible. If I had a magic wand, I'd give them food. I wouldn't have them live in fear. Uh, and, and this is something that I don't think was the case a couple hundred years ago. To get your bloody act together or your history. To get your bloody act together or your history. To get your bloody act together or your history. So, Celine, the last time we got personally together this way, we discussed history for the last 80 years, basically the same period that you want to talk about today. Are you looking at it from a different perspective now, the same period, or are you just, how do you see it now? Well, when the last time we met, we were not in a state of war. Mm -hmm. Today, as we meet in January 2023, we are in a state of war, even though our parliament has not declared any such thing. They are acting as a co-belligerent in the war that is going on in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine is a U.S.-led NATO proxy war against Russia, which began in February 2022 when Moscow and Putin launched the special military operation on February 24th. But the backstory of why Putin launched that special military operation goes back several years. You know, the war just didn't erupt on that particular day. No, of course not. Yeah. And yet, not much is discussed about that in the media. The media is all about Putin is the bad guy, Putin well, is a it, dictator. It seems that's the way they've been forever. Even when we talk about the documentary, they were constantly lying. It was like the media is a big lying machine. Well, this is what I was mentioning, yeah. that, you know, we are all in that sense, whoever the we is. I don't mean it in a personal sense, right. but here we are. We, we take pride in being a free society. We take pride in being a democratic society. Uh, and yet we can see that neither we are free, because if your information is not open and transparent and open to question, then that freedom is basically a rhetorical device. It is not substantive mm -hmm. if an individual cannot question his state of being. And so, here we are in a state of war. There's a war going on in Ukraine, in Europe. Both sides, Ukrainians and the Russians, are not stopping from pulling their punches. The Americans and the NATO countries are the backstop of Ukraine. America, just a couple of days after Christmas, passed an omnibus bill before the new Congress came in in January after the midterm election in November 2022. They passed an omnibus bill of $1.7 trillion in which 
$100 billion was allocated for Ukraine, both in terms of keeping the Ukrainian government financed, but also providing the war material necessary for Ukrainians to fight the Russians. A hundred billion dollars, that is larger than the entire annual expenditure of the Russian government, mm-hmm. you know. And nobody's asking the question, why? What is at stake in Ukraine? What is being told to the people is that the support for Ukraine is the support for the defense of Ukraine's independence. From the aggression and the invasion that has been carried out by Russia, you know. But the question is why? Why did Russia do this? Well, the answer is Putin is a madman. Well, when did he become mad? What was it that turned him into a madman? So the issue is to put all of this in some context. And that is what history is. Now, is it, is it an issue of that we never asked the questions, or is it an issue of those who did ask the questions were being silenced? It is both. Yeah. It is both, because it's, it's the old dilemma. If, if you haven't heard the sound of a tree falling in yeah. the forest, did the tree fall? <laughs> or did it make a sound? Or did it make a sound? Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it is, it, is, it is both. The fact of the matter is that our entire media, supported by the government through taxpayer money, such as the CBC in Canada, over a billion dollars is the annual expenditure. Unbelievable. And then all the other related media, CTV, Global, and so on and so forth, plus the print media, the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, National Post, they're owned by corporation. And in, in that sense, what is published and what is not published is a decision being made by the corporations that own it and their representative and the editorial board and so on. So they're making the decision of what will be made available to the public and what will not be made available to the public. Because when you compare the official mainstream media with the alternative media, there is a wide you know, disparity. <laughs> Night and day, to say the least. Yeah. And then there is censorship taking place. There is, uh, you know, a crackdown taking place that any report coming out of Russia should be banned and has been banned. Question is why? Why in a free society, the government, the politician, the corporate media thinks that the people cannot make up their own mind by looking at the evidence? Well, my experience has always been that if something is censored or banned, it's always the truth. Because there's nothing to fear from a bunch of lies and non-truths that can easily be disproven. So what would one fear if they wanted to censor? It's always the truth. And I've learned this from personal experience. Well, it goes back to that famous statement of George Orwell in 1984, I'm paraphrasing it, that omission is the greatest lie. Yeah. What is omitted, what is censored out, what is cut out from the story is the greatest lie. Yes, that's what Francis Connolly pointed out at the end of his commentary in his movie, too. Right. So here we are in the winter of 2023. We can go back in time. We can reconstruct the history that, in a sense, would open the window to where we are today Mm -hmm. uh, going forward. So let's take a quick snapshot of going back, a retrospective. Let's go back exactly, exactly to the day, to the week, 80 years ago, that is January of 1943. What was happening in January of 1943? Well, the Second World War had begun. Second World War began 
1939. On 1st of September 1939, when Britain declared war on Germany after German troops went into Poland, Canada immediately obliged. So we were at a war. We were a belligerent country. So war was going on. Then in December of 1941 came Pearl Harbor. And with that, America entered the war in the Pacific. Germany declared war on America, and then America then declared war on Germany, and so the war was on. So we are now almost in the middle of the war, 80 years ago, 1943. Very interesting. 1943 was the pivotal moment in the war. That is, right now, 80 years later, in January 2023, I would suggest we are at a pivotal moment in world history going forward. Why? 80 years ago was a pivotal moment where the Battle of Stalingrad was going on. Exactly in the vicinity of where the fight is taking place right now between the Russian forces and the NATO-backed Ukrainian forces. The Battle of Stalingrad was the hinge moment in Second World War. If the German army had broken through in Stalingrad, they were headed into Caucasus and then on to Caspian Sea, that is for the oil, gas, petroleum. Absolutely essential, fundamental to keep the highly industrialized army in the move. It's a gas pump. That's what it is. Very good, Carter. Looks like they're gonna feed the gas from the barracks. So why do they need a gas pump? I can't figure that out. You've done enough thinking for one day, Carter. You'll give yourself hives. Come on, gentlemen, come on. Let's go, let's move along. You don't belong here. Back, 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 back. Hey, Get Schultz. away from the wire. Back. What's going on? I know nothing. Nothing. Come on, Schultz. If I would know something, I wouldn't even tell myself. You don't even trust you? I'm too smart for that. Forget it, fellas. He's only a sergeant. They don't know anything important. That's right, sir. Copper right. almost. Oh, yeah, I'm only a sergeant. Yeah, well, is that so? <laughs> well, they wouldn't have a gasoline pump loading convoys heading for France without telling me. So don't you for... Don't, don't you forget it! No, get away from here! Get away from the wire! Why do you have to scream? I mean, really? Oh, oh, Come on! Uh, I'm warning you! There it is, fellas. Straight from the horse's mouth. Clever, these crafts. They refuel the trucks and store the gas here because they know our side won't bomb a POW camp. Can't you get in touch with the underground in Himmelberg? I doubt if they know anything. Eh? Right, Kirk. Hogan, this is none of your concern. The Geneva Convention forbids placing prisoners of war in danger. Gasoline is dangerous. Thank you, Hogan. You're very informative this morning. You're also dismissed. What about your pride? Do you realize they're making you a commandant of a gas station? What? You just think you're going to be standing out there and some two-bit sergeant's going to drive up to Clink's gas station and say, fill her up, buddy. Out this, miss. And then he's going to say, you better get that windshield really clean, fella. Get out before I have you thrown out. Take 28 pounds of air in the front, 30 in the rear. <laughs> the gall of that man. Insolence, pure insolence. Clink's gas station, Heil Hitler.
Hogan. Bit of a dirty trick flying you to London for an hour of being a free man and then dropping you back at Stalag 13. Breaks up the day, sir. <laughs> You're a good man. Guess what this is? D-Day, sir. D-Day, and forget you saw it. Now, I can't tell you the exact date. Even to tell you this much had to be cleared at the highest level of intelligence. The old man himself. But the date will be soon. It's been a long time coming, sir. A long time. And we don't want any mistakes, not on our part. Yes, sir. Of course, we could use a few mistakes from Jerry, and that's why you're here, Hogan. You have a drink? No, thanks, sir. Well... Don't mind if I do. Now, the German general staff know something is up. They are meeting tomorrow to plan their strategy. That we know for a fact. Very good intelligence, sir. And we know more. Our bombers have pounded just about every spot in Germany they've used for a meeting place. So they're going where they don't think we'll follow. Stalag 13. You're gonna bomb us? It's been brought up and rejected, which is where you come in, Hogan. Sit down. Hogan, you have quite a reputation for the offbeat, the bizarre, and for bringing it off. I have a good crew, sir. And you're going to need them. Now, sometime in the next very few days, the greatest amphibious force in history is going to hit the coast of France. And when it does, we need desperately some indecision from the Germans before they react. Hogan, we want nothing less from you than to tie up the German general staff. Can you do it? I must say, sir, it's quite a challenge. That's good enough. The means, we'll leave up to you. Thank you, sir. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online, and we're in studio with Salim Mansour. Thank you. So in January, February of 1943, the Battle of Stalingrad was decided. The German army, the 6th Army, under General von Paulus, who was made a field marshal, surrendered to the Russian army or the Soviet army at that time. And from that moment onwards, the Germans were on the back foot in the Eastern Front. And the Soviet army started pushing till eventually they went all the way to Berlin Mm -hmm. in 1945, May of 1945. In 1943, after the Battle of Stalingrad, after the events started taking a turn, there was a conference at the end of the year in Tehran of the big three, that is, President Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin met in Tehran, Iran, the capital of Iran, to discuss the state of the war and the future planning of the war. And it was at that conference that President Roosevelt agreed that there will be a second front open. And so the details would be left to his generals, but the principle was established. And six months later, in June of 1944, the invasion of Normandy, the invasion of France, began June 6, 1944. So from the two sides, the Soviet army from the east, the Allied forces with Canadian troops involved in it, 
landed in Normandy, and this was the last phase of the war. There would be minor battles like the Battle of Bulge and so on, but basically the war was going to be over. The Allied powers were going to win, and Germany would be defeated. So just before the end of the war, in February of 1945, was the last conference that President Roosevelt attended with Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin at Yalta. Where is Yalta? Yalta is on the Black Sea. Yalta is in Crimea, which is, you know, being fought over, or the area around it is being fought over the Donbass region, where the fight is taking place right now in the Ukraine war. And the future of Europe and the world was being decided at that conference. Everybody knew that the Soviet army would go into Berlin. Europe, as a result, would be divided. It was Roosevelt's decision. Roosevelt and Stalin had come to an agreement. Churchill was a reluctant partner in this matter because President Roosevelt had made it clear that this war would be the end of empires, which was the biggest empire at that time, Mm -hmm. before the war broke out. And now the war is coming to an end the British Empire. And Churchill was not going to be a participant in the breakup of the British Empire. But that's what was going to be the result. And very quickly, we can see things happen. Again, very fast, you know. The the conference meets in February of 1945. President Roosevelt then heads back home. He arrives in uh, America sometime in March. In a matter of less than a month, he is dead. April 12, 1945, president dies. Big question mark, what was the circumstances? How did it happen? People knew that the president was ailing. He was fatigued. He was tired. But still, that question was there. And there had been speculation. Was it that President Roosevelt's death was an unnatural death? In other words, that he had been put to death by people around him. And the question then comes, who would do such a thing? What would be the interest of those people who would do it? Bob, this is a couple of passage from the book by L. Fletcher Prouty. JFK, the CIA, Vietnam, and the plot to assassinate John F. Kennedy. Prouty was a colonel in the United States Army Air Force, and he was deputed to be the pilot of the very, very important personalities. And among them, of course, was the president. And he used to fly, or he flew the president as Franklin Roosevelt to many of the conferences that Franklin Roosevelt attended during the war. Here's a couple of passages that is very, very interesting. This is Prouty. When oil is found in the Middle East, it is controlled by the petroleum companies. When gold is found in South Africa, it is controlled by corporate mining interests. And if such things of value cannot be controlled by direct colonization, they are controlled by an equally powerful and oppressive economic force called the World Bank or International Monetary Fund. In the process, genocide is practiced regularly to limit excesses and to preserve earth for the fittest. More than anyone else, Franklin D. Roosevelt understood this characteristically British instinct And when confronted with the grave issue of post-war colonialism at the meeting of the Big Four in Tehran, he spoke boldly to Churchill in front of the Chinese, 
who had suffered so much from the East India Company mentality, and before the Russians, who had suffered so much from British economic power after World War I. That was a truly momentous discussion in an unequal setting, as reported in one of this government's own publications. Why hasn't more been written about this story? And why hasn't the simple fact that Xiang and his influential wife, Mace Ling Sung, were there in Tehran to witness this drama between Winston Churchill and Franklin D. Roosevelt being included in history books of the time. Churchill never forgot and never forgave Roosevelt for this exchange. During the Yalta Conference in early February 1945, the subject of trusteeships for various British, French, and Dutch colonies came up again. When the heads of state, Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt, met during that session, Churchill was reported to have exploded, declaring, I absolutely disagree. I will not have one scrap of British territory flung into that arena as long as every bit of land over which the British flag flies is to be brought back into the dock. I shall object as long as I live. Before departing from this subject, I should add a brief personal account that ties together these two most unusual stories. As I was flying the Chinese delegation from Cairo to Tehran in a VIP Lockheed Lodestar, I had to land at the airport in Habania, Iraq, for fuel. While we were on the ground, an Air Force B-25 arrived. The pilot, Captain Leon Gray, was a friend of mine, and with him as co-pilot was Lieutenant Colonel Elliot Roosevelt. They were both from an aerial reconnaissance unit in Algiers. During this refueling interlude, I introduced the Chinese to Elliot and his pilot. Elliot, that is the son of Franklin Roosevelt, told us that his father had invited him to attend the conference because he wanted him to meet Marshal Joseph Stalin. This meeting in Tehran between Elliot and Stalin became part of a most unusual incident that took place only a few years later. As reported in Parade magazine on February 9, 1986, Elliot Roosevelt wrote that he had visited Stalin in 1946 for an interview. This had reminded him of something quite extraordinary that had occurred at the time of President Roosevelt's sudden death less than two months after the Yalta Conference. At that time, 1945, Soviet Ambassador Andrei Gromyko had been directed by Stalin to view the remains of the dead president, but Mrs. Roosevelt had denied that request several times. While Elliot was with Stalin in 1946, this subject rose again. According to Elliot Roosevelt, this is what Stalin said. When your father died, I sent my ambassador with a request that he be allowed to view the remains and report to me what he saw. Your mother refused. I have never forgiven her. But why? Elliot asked. They poisoned your father, of course, just as they have tried repeatedly to poison me. Your mother would not allow my representative to see evidence of that. But I know. They poisoned him. They? Who are they? Elliot asked. The Churchill gang, Stalin roared. They poisoned your father and they continue to try to poison me. The Churchill gang. Now I have tried to research to see if there are any other report about the possibility of Roosevelt 
having been poisoned or in some way put to death after he returned from Yalta. There are rumors, but nobody has, you know, substantiated anything. But this story, which is a first-person story between Colonel Fletcher Prouty, who later became the personal pilot for John F. Kennedy, who had served in the Eisenhower administration in the president's office, that is the White House, and Elliot Roosevelt, who was at that time a lieutenant colonel in the same United States Army Air Force and the son of the president, is fascinating. That's an understatement. And if it has been, it's an understatement. And if it has been buried, it has been buried for very good reason. Wow. Because that's the backstory. No, People don't that, know the backstory. That's yeah. almost like watching that movie again. Yeah. So these are things that were happening at the highest level. <laughs> because <laughs> you, you remember the, the, the famous poem by Robert Frost, The Fork in the Road. It's a very famous poem. I don't have the full lines in my head. And then he chose to take the one which is less traveled. And he walks on that road. And then he asks him the question, but what would I have found if I had traveled on that road? Mm-hmm. So life and history is always a fork in the road. How did Stalin come to power? If we return back to those early days, post the October Revolution with Lenin and Trotsky and Stalin, how did he come to power? So what Stalin did very cleverly, Stalin was, you know, he worked the system. He was, you know, but he was very much in the background. And what he did better than Trotsky is he was much more a politician. He was a gladhander. He made friends within the party. He made people feel respected and appreciated. Uh, and Lenin trusted him. Uh, when after Lenin's stroke, Stalin was basically the one who was keeping track of him. St- uh, Lenin asked Stalin at one point for to kill him because mm-hmm. after the strokes, he was incapacitated. Stalin talked him out of it. But at the same time, Lenin was like, if I need someone killed, like, this is who I need to talk to. You know, Stalin, if you look up photos of him when he was young, he was a stud. He was a gangster. He was a bank robber. Uh, and, you know, he basically worked the system. And you had the Trotskyites on one hand, who were much more to the left. Stalin's big, I would guess, I would call it a heresy, was he put forth the idea of socialism in one country. Whereas like we're just going to make it work here in what became the Soviet Union. The Trotsky idea, and this is really kind of the Marxist idea, is that the workers' revolution has to be worldwide. Uh, this is just a worldwide kind of new era of humanity, where Stalin's like, no, no, no we're just going to make it he- here and then later uh, behind what became the Iron Curtain. Mm-hmm. But this was, sure, this was an ideological division between the two, but what happens in totalitarian countries, it happens in any kind of like, you know, when you have intermingling, inter- intermingling of like religion and government, Things that are like ideological, ideological disputes, like the Arian heresy. The Arian heresy in Christianity is that Christ is subordinate to God the Father, right? Whereas in the contemporary Orthodox version, it's three gods, one God and three person, excuse me. So they're all co-equal aspects of God in heaven. But that was an excuse to be like, you guys are evil, you're on the side of the devil, we're going to kill you. So these little disputes about ideas are often a convenient cover for people to have a power struggle in the guise of being like, it's not that I'm about wanting to be more powerful, I'm just on the side of the truth and you're speaking lies and that's dangerous to the revolution or to the true faith. So he squeezed, but the thing is Trotsky had the seeds of his own defeat because per Trotsky, the party is always right 
you cannot be right against the party, right? So if you have this kind of party structure and the party is saying you're wrong, as an individual, you are wrong because the collective is what makes decisions. The collective, the workers, are who have the knowledge and and, uh, the information. And it is important for you to kind of subordinate your selfishness, your individualism to this greater good. Is it clear to you why Trotsky lost that power struggle? Is there another alternative possible trajectory where Trotsky could have been the the head of the Soviet Union? Uh, It would be very hard because he was Jewish. So when they were seizing power, Trotsky explicitly said, I can't be in charge, I'm Jewish. So the Soviet Union remained extremely anti-Semitic. One of the reasons so many Jews became communists in the Soviet Union, because the promise was once the communists took over, we're not going to have pogroms anymore. Pogroms was you had these Jewish ghettos and under the permission or um, encouragement of the czar, just gangs of people go through killing, raping, robbing, stealing, rioting for days. And just, it was just a complete massacre. And the idea is like under communism, everyone's going to be equal. We're not going to have this anymore. They still had it, but to a lesser extent. But uh, since Trotsky was Jewish, his real name is Lev Bronstein, you can't, you, it was almost impossible to have a scenario where he was going to be in charge. And Stalin fed into that to some extent. Also this kind of idea of Jewish internationalism, it's like, okay, he doesn't really have loyalty to Russia. And many of the people who were Jewish, who were high up in Stalin's um, uh, government administration, they very much had to prove their loyalty uh, to communism as opposed to Judaism. Throughout the 20th century, what was the relationship between communism and, Jews in the Soviet Union. What, in terms of anti-Semitism, the ups and downs of anti-Semitism, it seems like it lessened, it was lesser and greater in different parts of the 20th century. Well, it, it's it's the kind of thing where um, if something was bad, it's there's this Russian rhyme, uh, you, it, like, like if there's if there's no water in the sink, who drank it all? The Jews. Um, so if something goes wrong, there's there's just a convenient historical scapegoat. It's it's the Jews' fault. So this is something that's towards the end of his life, very much. And this was after World War II. Stalin was getting ready for another kind of series of pogroms. There, all these Jews were getting kicked out of their jobs. Uh, Jewish doctors were getting sent to the Far East instead of being in cities. Uh, the newspapers started talking about uh, cosmopol- rootless cosmopolitans, which was a term the Nazis also used to kind of uh, uh, regard Jews as others or as aliens. Uh, and this was going to be, and, and they were very clever about it. Uh, in Pravda, they would, and I talk about this in the, in the White Pill, in Pravda, there were articles, and uh, uh, letters to the editor, they were like, you know, things are getting so anti-Semitic we really should round up all the Jews and send them elsewhere for their own safety. So they were kind of setting the the ground rules or the, the or the basis to have this sort of uh, uh, program come back. But uh, spoiler alert: um, Stalin dies, and immediately um, all of this gets reversed, and the new administration. Um, rehabilitates the doctors who were accused of trying to hurt him and, and all this other sort of thing. I have to say, Salim, that passage you just read sounded just like that documentary all over again. 
another piece of history I never knew anything about or even suspected about. And that goes back to your point that you made the last time, that history is unsettled as yeah, new well, evidences emerge or well, new questions emerge. Yeah, that was pretty unsettling, I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the war ended and the result was the shaping of the world for the remainder of the 20th century. And the remainder of the 20th century was a world divided between East and West, between West led by the United States and the East led by Soviet Union and the emergence of the Global South, which had been basically colonial empires of the British, the French, the Dutch, the Spanish, the Portuguese. And now these countries were gaining independence. The first country that gained independence was India in 1947. And we can see that in a matter of approximately a dozen years, all of the countries of Asia, Africa, Latin America emerged as independent countries, became members of the United Nations, so on and so forth. India's independence followed by China in 1949, the making of the Communist People's Republic of China with the defeat of Chiang Kai-shek and, and the victory of the Communist Party under Mao Zedong changed the equation in world politics. You know, It gave an added muscle, so to speak, to the East, that is, to the Soviets, and the West, that is, America and its allied power, felt that they were under some sort of uh, pressure as these revolutions took place and countries became independent, all right? So if you quickly take the snapshot from 1945 to 1991, this is almost half a century where you have this divided world. And within this divided world, events take place inside the Soviet Union, events take place in the West. One of the most important and troubling events that took place in the West, among many events, was the murder of John F. K. Exactly 20 years after the Battle of Stalingrad, mm -hmm. you know, 1943, 1963. That was the year, 1963, when number of events happened subsequent to the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962, when the Americans discovered that the Soviet Union had placed nuclear missiles and launch pads in Cuba after the Cuban Revolution of 1959 under Fidel Castro. And the world headed into a confrontation because John F. K. said that this has to be removed. And you go through that period of Cuban Missile Crisis when both the countries, led by Kennedy and Khrushchev, the premier of Soviet Union, negotiated peacefully to end the crisis the Soviet missiles were removed from Cuba, and subsequently the Americans would remove their missiles from Turkey that was close to the Soviet border, okay? But there were a lot of powerful people within the United States who were very, very angry with what had happened because it was not simply the removal 
of the missile that anchored them. They had wanted to invade Cuba. In fact, an invasion had taken place right. in Cuba. The Bay of Pigs invasion of April 1961, which was defeated by the Cuban forces. And that's another story over there. And John F. K was furious when he learned about this invasion because he had not, in a sense, approved of it. It was a mission that had been planned under the previous administration, Eisenhower, and carried out once he had become the president. You know, his inauguration took place in January of 1961. So he was very angry with it. And when he learned about it, he's supposed to have said that he would smash the CIA, who were responsible for it, into a thousand pieces and mm. scattered them because they were acting, you know, as if they were a power unto itself. So they were very angry. The CIA was very angry about this. But there was the other dimension that is now, in retrospect, so very important to understand. John F. K. had given the instruction that in Vietnam, the Americans who had gone to Vietnam to support a South Vietnamese government as contractors, as, you know, military officials, but not in terms of waging a war, but providing assistance to the South Vietnamese government, that they would be withdrawn. And the president had signed a National Security Action Memorandum number 263 in the summer of 1963, saying that the first batch of Americans in South Vietnam will have to be returned home by December of that year. And the balance would all will be brought home by the end of 1965. That is the year when Kennedy was expecting to be re-elected in the 1964 election. He was preparing to run for the re-election that mm. November of 1964. So the decision on Vietnam was another decision that angered the people in Washington. Who were the people in Washington who got angered? Well, the warning of that had been already given by President Eisenhower when he made his farewell address in January of 1967 and warned the American people about the military-industrial complex. Now might be the time for wild military-industrial complex theories. And here's one. Tanner was about to post super-secret military documents. They took him out with a drone, and now they're covering it up, which actually isn't so wild. I don't know. Maybe they just fired the missile by mistake. And just so happened to hit a, a vocal critic of the U.S. government? Back in. Yo, got a call from CSU. Feds just came in and seized all materials related to the Tanner case. What, the explosive residue, the fragment samples? All of it. We've been played. They just met with us to find out where everything was and what we knew, and then they grabbed all the evidence. And now we have no proof that a drone strike ever happened. We're no closer to figuring out why it happened or who did it. Now we know, 60 plus years later, that the reference to the military-industrial complex is what is referred to as the deep state. That is, the entire intelligence community in Washington and the permanent bureaucracy in Washington, the FBI, the CIA, and the congressmen and senators who are involved with them are basically running what is called the deep state that is unaccountable and unelected who make the decision. And for them, 
wars, perpetual wars, are a source of perpetual profit and it is to be sold to the people as a necessity to bring peace in bringing the defeat of an enemy that is also perpetual. And it also justifies their existence. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And what John F. K. was doing was trying to reverse all of that. He was trying to bring it down. He was trying to end this confrontation. And so he had become the big stumbling block. And the killing of John F. K., now we can infer, was done by the CIA, by the deep state. And in fact, the people we can even mention and know, people like Alan Dulles and his officials in the CIA, the mafia organization that was complicit with the CIA in gun running, in drug dealing, and so on. To wrap this up is to make the observation, to make the point that there is an America which is the America that we all look at it on the surface, the Constitutional Republic, the ideas of 1776, the values of 1776. But behind that, is the America of the deep state, that is the America of the empire. America gradually morphed into an empire. And after the Second World War, with the empire, the European empires having been removed, America would become the empire, confronting the Soviet Union. Both were armed with nuclear weapons, or mm-hmm. came to be armed with nuclear weapons. But once the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, it becomes then this ambition of America, of the deep state, of the neocons, that America will not allow any other power to challenge or question America's dominance, hegemony in global politics. That is, America is the unipolar power. That's the connection that we need to understand to explain why this war in Ukraine ultimately erupted. That's our time for today, Salim, but it's certainly not the conclusion of our conversation, which we were, we're going to continue in the next episode of our show. And I have to say, that's a remarkable revelation, I think, historically. And what's coming up, I know you want to talk about the future, what's going to happen in this year, 2023. And going forward. And going forward. So anyone who's interested in hearing the rest of the plot, be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. I can't believe he'd have anything to do with killing Churchill. He said it himself. He can get near Churchill. The crotch are treating him very nicely. I think he sold out. Him? Collaborate with the Nazis? That man over there is British. Not Robbie. I'm sorry, Nukov. We've got to consider it. And so far, every detail of our plan has worked beautifully. Yes, beautifully. Major, I've been through a good deal in the last few months without being told anything. Hey, they got Roberts in there. Oh, yeah, and he's making noises like one of them. Now, I should like to know exactly what is my mission. You have been chosen to kill the greatest enemy we Germans have in this war. 
Winston Churchill. Well, that? The sellout. No, he won't do it. Right, sir. Not one of our lads. Major. I am honored. A bleeding traitor. <laughs> Hold it. Sir, we just can't let him have a shot at old Winnie. I'm with you, Newkirk. I mean, the war wouldn't be the same without him. 